0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the black line podcast. Uh, Once again, I am uh, excited for our guest today. I guess that's uh, probably a normal thing since we have a lot to do with uh, who the guests actually are. (laughs) I've actually been looking forward to, uh, to this recording for about six weeks now. I'm not going to tell them why. (laughs) Uh, those of you who don't know who John Barrows is, I'm going to let him introduce himself in just a second, but he is the make it happen guy. So if you don't have a make it happen t-shirt, this guy's sales advice and make sure you get a make it happen t-shirt. John, welcome to the podcast. If anyone doesn't know who you are, why don't you take a minute and tell them who you
1: are. Awesome. Thanks, Doug. I appreciate it. And I'm psyched to be here. And, and thanks so much for the uh, help with the uh, promoting the Make It and brand. Uh, by the way, all, all proceeds go to charity. So you helped out some charities too there. Um, but yeah, thanks for having me. I'm John Barrows. Uh, I do sales training consulting for my own little consulting shop here, Jay Barrows Consulting. And uh, yeah, I train, um, some a lot of those tech SaaS companies, faster growing ones like Salesforce, LinkedIn, Box, Dropbox, Google, Okta, Aptis. Um, you know, a lot of those companies who are just trying to ramp their sales teams and, and do sales right. And, uh, that's what I'm trying to do. I always say I'm not a, I'm not a trainer. I'm a sales guy who happens to train, uh, cause my passion is sales and I just happen to be all right. Kind of sharing the info with people.
0: You know, we could retitle this podcast today, three sales guys. <laughs> yep, cause, cause that's pretty much what, what, what we got here. So this will be a, uh, A fun, far-reaching conversation that I'm sure will get irreverent at times. Not that you've been known to do that, Mr. Barrows.
1: No, not at all. Me?
0: (laughs) If if you recall, it was about six weeks ago. I saw you down in Atlanta. You were uh, speaking at Drift's Roadshow there, Mm and I loved what you said. By the way, I got to give you credit because you recited your cold call script word for word.
1: <laughs> Still um, remember it after 15 years, man. And,
0: and so I was talking to Ryan, our VP of sales, and actually I came pretty close. I didn't have it word for word, but uh did, did love that. Anyways, um, you said what I think everyone is thinking, and that is you got into sales about 20 years ago, and mm-hmm. everyone says that sales and marketing was fucked up 20 years ago. Yep. And today, today they're they're saying the same damn thing.
1: Yep. Uh, uh,
0: You know, there's no shortage of books. There's no shortage of trainers. There's no shortage of thought. Um, And I, and, and it sucks as much today as it did 20 years ago. What's your take on it? Why does sales and marketing still suck?
1: You know, I just think there's a lack of appreciation for both sides of the house. I mean, I, I come from both sides of the house. My my degrees in marketing, that's the first one I got because 20 years ago, you couldn't get a sales degree. Um, now, thankfully, you're starting to see, uh, you know, universities offer it as a major and stuff like that. But, you know, so, so I had the background with marketing, even though I didn't really have an true appreciation for it until I got into the business world. And then when I got into sales, um, you know, I've always had kind of the, the, that, that VP of sales and marketing head, but usually it's either sales or marketing. And, and I just don't think there's a healthy respect for the amount of effort it takes from a sales standpoint to, to get those people to talk to us. Uh, from, a marketing's, the, from a marketer standpoint. And there's also, from a sales standpoint, there's not an appreciation for the effort that marketing puts in to come up with the content and actually use it to provide feedback, right? So I actually don't think it's a technical issue. I don't think, it's a, I don't think there's a tool out there that'll fix it. I think it's, it's genuinely a people issue I mean, most organizations I walk into, um, you know, that marketing is on one side of the house and sales is on the other side of the house, like physically, I mean this, or marketing is on the second floor and sales is on the third floor. And what happens is marketing comes up with all this really, you know, whatever decent content, whatever it is, and throws it over the fence to sales and says, go ahead and use it. And then sales does or doesn't use it. And then provides, you know, and their feedback is, well, that sucks. It didn't work. And, and Mark is like, well, why didn't it work? It's like, "Well, I don't know. it just sucked. Right. And it's usually because the sales team doesn't really want to use it for whatever reason, maybe because they've been burned a few times by shitty materials or whatever. Um, And the last thing I'll say to it, which I think leads to a much bigger conversation, is I think there's this underlying thing specifically that's happening right now where sales is trying. It's almost like marketing is trying to squeeze sales out of the equation. Right? So you got all, all this artificial intelligence, you got all these tools right now that are creating like super personalized emails without people and are trying to guide customers through the journey and challenge your sale talks about by the time somebody comes to us, they're already 70% of the way through. So why hire sales to, to address that? Why not customer success, right? So I think there's a feel out there from sales that marketing is trying to eat into our world. And there's like this, get the fuck away from me. You know what I mean? Know your role. Let me do my job. And now, and it's actually what, that's why I think it's actually to a certain degree getting worse because there's this pretending like we want to work together. But if I bet you, if you ask most CEOs out there, if they could get rid of their sales team and just do marketing, the answer more than 50% of it would be yes.
0: In in fairness, as a sales guy myself, if I could get rid of me, I'd get rid of me too. (laughs) I mean, good, especially good salespeople. They're, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of the challenger model. They're difficult people. They, right. you know, they don't just challenge customers. They don't just push customers. They push internally. They, they break stuff.
1: Well, so, so, but that's no. See, that's different. I, think think challenger sale. I'll take a challenge. I'll take a jackass sales rep any day of the week who, cha- who genuinely challenges and pushes the company and the customers to make the right decisions, right? Because those are the ones that are going to succeed. The ones that I think are getting are, are are getting replaced, and and arguably should get replaced, are the ones that are going through the motions, right? The reps who are just cranking out the template emails, making the generic cold calls, asking bullshit bant questions, you know, press and play on demos, all that stuff, like. All that stuff, those are the reps that, that in my opinion, yeah, absolutely should get replaced. So
0: I I finally get to ask somebody who's at the front line there. Mike, I promise you, you're going to be able to ask a question.
2: No, and and this is all interesting because it's it's what we – it's, Doug, one of the things that we talk about on a daily basis is exactly what John just touched on. And, John, just so that you know, my experience uh, or prior to founding – my company, I was in enterprise tech sales for 13 years. And exactly what you said of the way that I felt about marketing was exactly what you said. I'm like, I'm like this content is shit. It doesn't work. It's not producing any of the results that I'm looking for. So therefore I'm going to be just kind of this lone wolf going off and doing my own thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but now that I actually work, my primary customer today is marketers. I've yep. actually learned how difficult the discipline is for them yeah. um, and also why they have challenges in working with salespeople. So again, I, I just thought I'd. You're, you're no, it's
1: nice. a lack of empathy. I mean, if I think if each Good. one of us could spend a week or a month in each other's shoes, yep. that would make a big difference.
0: So, so what, where, where I was going, John, you, you work with these companies, you work with large scale, fast growth, People who are filling up my inbox with crap—not not your clients, of course—but yeah, yeah.
1: oh no, no, my no, half of my clients still crank out the so, shit. So, Can only train so many people. <laughs>
0: I, <laughs> um, I so I got into I, I've gotten into a debate with several people who who rail on salespeople for sending out these crappy emails. Yeah, but I don't think it's the salespeople that are sending out the crappy emails. I think it's their managers and the people above them who are giving them crappy emails to send out.
1: Absolutely. There's no question about that. So, so reps will do what you tell them to do, right? Unfortunately, because let's go back to the lack of education, right? Like we're not educated on how to do what we do. We are literally the least educated profession in, in, out there, right? And, and I mean that in our profession, not least educated people. I mean the least educated in our profession. And usually it's trial and error or whatever it is. And especially when you get a young kid, I wrote a post on this. So I, I hired that kid, uh, Morgan, right? So Morgan Ingram is, and he's 25, he's an SDR. And we've been working together. And I wrote a post a little while ago that, that really took off. And it was how to work with millennials, right? Like Gen Xers our age. You know, there's, there's this big divide between Gen Xers and millennials because we grew up in a world of when I was out there, you know, play, you know when I was at home and I was bored in my house, my mom you know, would just kick me out of the house and go, go, go fucking play. Like, go, go play in the street. I don't give a shit what you do. Just be home by, you know, six, by home by dinner, right? So I had to leave the house and I had to legitimately go, quote unquote, figure it out. You know, I'd go light shit on fire. I'd go play in the street. You know, I'd break stuff and, and I'd learn things, right? But just by doing it. Where today, and I noticed this with my daughter now, you know, every minute of every kid's life is structured. So they go to school from this hour to this hour. Then they have soccer practice from this hour to this hour. Then they, then they have their iPad for 30 minutes. Then they get to play with their friends for an hour. Then they have dinner. And, they, and every minute of their lives has been structured. And so then they get out into the real world and managers like us say, figure it out. And these kids look at you sideways like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, tell me what to do. And the default reaction is, well, here's a script. Here's a template because I want to control the message, right? And if you get a kid, if you get a 22 year old kid, a 23 year old kid who doesn't know any better out of college, you give them a script, you give them a template. That's what they're going to do. And so then you have all these kids who are taking these templates, putting them into sales loft, outreach, tout app, yes, pick one of those quote unquote sales efficiency tools. And they're blasting them out there and they're using them just like they would Marketo or Eloqua or any of those other tools. And there's no fucking difference. But the answer, just to put a point on that, the answer isn't scripts. The answer isn't templates. The answer is structure. You give a kid structure. My, my experience is you find these kids, you give them structure, they will execute within that structure better than we ever would. So that's really the answers. Like, that's why I talk about it. here's the structure of a good contact strategy. Here's the structure of a good voicemail. Here's the structure of a good email. Now here's some tools that you can put in there. Now go off and play on your own.
0: Oh, my God. There's so much to break out from here. But I want to start off and say it's worse than that. It's not that they say, here, go send the emails and, and the reps go send the emails. If a rep doesn't send that email, if a rep, God forbid, actually thinks for a second and goes, this is a douchebag email.
1: Yep.
0: I would kill somebody if they sent it to me. I'm going to actually write something. We've got, you know, we're and I'm a fan of sales operations, but we're building sales operations. We're building, you can't change that. Send hmm. the damn thing out. So yep. it's, it's not just. It's not just that they're not thinking, it's that they're They're being forced to.
1: Well, we're in this world, I think we're in this weird world right now where we're in such an odd transition phase in the sense that everybody understands that quality is the answer, right? I mean, that's why account-based marketing is, is, is all of a sudden the buzz, right? Or has been buzz for about a year or I two. I
0: thought it was because consultants could make a whole bunch of money by calling it account-based marketing. That's not yeah, it.
1: I, I, apparently, I need to come up with some type of catchphrase that I can <laughs> fucking <make> sell <laughs> so, just, you know, just as a new acronym so I can make some fucking more money or write a book about it because now all of a sudden it's cool, right? But you know what? All account-based marketing to me is is a realization from marketing that we have to stop spamming people like I think because because all of a sudden marketing automation and content marketing came out and I think marketers went batshit crazy and they said fuck it rah! and they threw it out to everybody and then look at early stages it drove shitloads of results it drove inbound it drove all this other stuff but now the market is so saturated with all that stuff marketing is kind of coming back to Jesus here and saying oh maybe we should stop that maybe we should be more targeted with our message maybe we should be more tailored right so we're in this world right now where everybody knows that quality is the answer but we are still asking kids to make 50 dials a day 100 dials a day and i think and my opinion here is because again gen xers right that's how we grew up i mean we grew up with i don't know about you guys but when i was first in sales like if i wasn't making a shitload of phone calls if i wasn't full-blown boiler room reco style like even if i was on email i was getting smacked, right you know what I mean? You know Recco, right? But but if you know, like if I wasn't hitting the phones and making those that that many so that's how I grew up. So my inherent as a manager, and most managers suck, right? Because they get less training than sales reps do. So if if I don't know anything other than what to control, like I, I it's hard to control quality because like now I have to coach you on quality, I have to teach you quality. I don't have to teach you how to make 50 dials a fucking day. So as a manager, I can yell at my reps and I can use at least one very simple metric of how many dials or how many emails to judge um, your performance. And so that's why I think it's actually our fault as Gen Xers or our generation to a certain degree. It's kind of like everybody shits on millennials for being the trophy generation. Well, they weren't the ones screaming for the trophies. It was our generation and above that gave them those trophies because we felt bad.
0: It was all the damn parents who didn't get trophies when they were younger who wanted to. fill Yeah. Up. Anyway, sorry, I digress. Yeah. Um. So. Me, me oh, you—you you have my head so full right now. I'm ready. I, I was solving two days ago. I am ready to. <laughs> so. So I, I tweeted the other day. Well, I, I actually, I just remember what I was going to say. I think you're only isolating half of the problem.
1: Okay, what's we'll the other you're, half?
0: You're, you're, you're looking at the salesperson problem and you're talking about, you know, I mean, I think we have to be careful that we don't fall into well, in the good old days back when I was there. No,
1: no not, I, those are the bad old days. Right. I'm, I'm saying those were, the, the volume days were fucking horrible. Everybody, everybody knows quality, but the problem, we're still stuck in this middle ground where we know quality, we're forcing quantity.
0: So there's the change in the workforce, which is fair. But the other thing is, the only reason that the sales process worked 20 years ago when you and I got started and, um, and I guess 13 years ago when young Mike over there got started. Uh, the, the only reason it worked was because the buyer had no choice, right? The yeah. buyer was forced to play our stupid games. Nope. The buyer has changed. The buyer oh, is smarter. Yeah. The buyer is more sophisticated and guess what? And, and this is where I'm getting angry because I actually think, you know, for a long time I've been working like you, Let's fix sales and marketing. Let's get salespeople and marketers to understand it. And I realized they're getting short shifted on the deck because if you give somebody 2,946 pieces of a puzzle Mm -hmm. and tell them to solve a 5,000 piece puzzle, (laughs) change the priorities every day, randomize the focus and then come in with all kinds of, new next thing, products, tech, easy button stuff, so you're changing stuff all the time. They are not going to fix the puzzle. The failure, in my opinion, is a failure of senior management. They're Mm -hmm. not spending the time. They're not putting the resources. You know, you can talk to Morgan about structure. You know why you can talk to Morgan about structure? Because you can do the job. Right? Right. And so you've done the hard work. To think about it, to work on it. You put in 20 years of work, you screwed up, you test it, you continue to test, you put it out there. We got a whole bunch of people that are raising all kinds of money or, or if you're not funded, they're sitting over here. They've got unrealistic expectations. Yep. They're underfunding sales and marketing. They're putting bogeys on people that aren't possible. They know nothing about their market. And then they're saying, why aren't you hitting quotas? And then we're saying 50% of sales reps don't hit quota. Well, guess what? If 50% of sales reps don't hit quota, it's not a salesperson problem. It's a senior management problem.
2: I agree
1: with that. Yeah. So how do
0: we fix that?
1: Well, I think it goes back to the empathy piece and putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. So a little while ago, I wrote a post called The Founder's Dilemma, which is, you know, and it's it's mostly tech founders, right? Because I've seen it too many times. And it relates to this, which is, you know, as a founder, I come up with, say I'm an engineer and I come up with a cool product, right? And it's really cool. So what happens is when I come in, in every, and I, somebody told me this early in my career, and I still believe this to this day, that sales is the transfer of enthusiasm, right? It's, that, it's like, if you genuinely believe in your product and your service, sales, I'm not saying is easy, but holy shit, is it easier? right? Because it's, it's just about finding that person that fits that right profile and then, and then talking to them in a very passionate way and, and meaning it, right? And so that's what happens is a founder comes up with their product service, whatever it is. Then they typically go out to market to their friends, family, and fools who, who give them good feedback on it. And because they are, are you know, expressing themselves so passionately about what they built to a rather friendly audience, now all of a sudden they're getting feedback saying, sent- and holy shit, everybody wants this. This is easy to sell. So now they might go raise a round or two of funding, whatever it is, because again, when they're talking to VCs, that passion of that executive is coming through to those VCs and they're articulating it the right way. So they're like, all right, I got some money. People like my shit. Let's just hire a bunch of fucking sales reps and tell them to go close it, right? And the sales reps get no, they, there's really limited direction. They don't have really any true understanding of what the product or service does and why it works. They don't buy into it. They just look at a paycheck and say, how much money can I make, right? Because the, the company doesn't bring them along the right way and get them bought into this. And then they fail miserably, right? Because they go out there and 50% fail or whatever it is because they're not the founder. They don't have the passion for the thing. And, they're, and by the way, they're selling to a broader audience that doesn't truly fit that ICP. And then the the founder says, "Oh, fucking sales reps are the worst, right?" And and let's fire all sales and let's do it marketing. So now somebody come in here with Marketo and Eloqua, whatever it is. Let's do marketing automation. Let's flood the market with all this stuff, and let's try try to drive inbound. And that tends to work for a little while, but then it always slams into a wall, and the founder has to come back to you know and say, "Shit, now I got to hire sales again." But it's almost they do it as a uh, a kind of like a necessary evil. Like oh, shit! I wish I didn't have to hire sales reps. And, you know, I mean, what, so obviously, yeah, to your point, it is a senior leadership problem because there's an assumption that you can sell. Yeah, and this, one more, I'm sorry, one more point. is when it, If you tell me that the best sales reps on the planet can sell anything, then I'm going to be the worst sales rep you've ever come across in your life. Because I do, I fundamentally do not believe i mean, maybe the best dirtbag sales reps you've ever come across can sell anything, but like true genuine sales reps who give a shit and are doing it for the right reasons. They can only sell stuff that they believe in.
0: Well, and, 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 and I'll add two other things to that. Um, and I, and it, it's so funny you talked about, it, you know, in the old days it used to be okay. Let's give them, let's give them blackberries. That'll solve it. Let's bring yeah. the sales team in. So it, it's, it, it is that, that same thing. And I think that's fair. Um, the the, the the other the other place where I, I, I feel like they they get lost is we forget we we forget two things. One, there's a customer on the other end. Yes. And the customer doesn't care about your solution. The mm-hmm. customer's not looking for solutions, they're looking to solve problems. Yes. And and so I hear, and I'm sure you hear it too, founders, sellers, VPs of sales bitch all the time about how customers just won't spend enough time to understand the difference between their product and somebody else's product to understand where that value is. Right. right. Is that fair? Sure. And, and I, and I listened to them and sometimes they even ask me, well, how much time have you actually spent to understand their world back to right. empathy? Yep. And, and so that, that founder, that company doesn't understand anything about their customer and mm-hmm. they think they're going to go out in the world and, and, and quote unquote, make it rain. Yep. secondly, we also forget that the other guys—they've got passionate people too. Mm-hmm. They've got demand generation too. They've got. Oh, by the way, contractually, I'm required when you say every two times you say Marquetta and Aloqua, I have to say HubSpot. Just you know. Just, Perfect. Just,
1: I just, I just, I just <laughs> placeholders. By the way, I just way.
0: can't. I can't yeah. lose my. Uh, you yep. know, my fans.
1: they're my marketing engine. Yep, go for it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh. Right, and so you know they're they're. Actually, actually, a really fascinating book having nothing to do with, with this topic, but Nate Silver wrote a book called The, uh, the Signal and the Noise. Um, and he talked about poker, he talked about Texas Hold'em. And he said, there's an interesting thing when, when, when 10 people are playing Texas Hold'em, when the game starts, 10 people playing Texas Hold'em, six to eight people make money. Roughly six people make money, two people are breaking even, even and two people lose all their money. Those two people are called the fish. Right? They're the people who do not belong. They don't know what the hell they're doing. They're stupid and everybody makes money at the expense of those two people. And by the way, the guy that's ahead, he's ahead, but not, not big time. Well, once you're down to eight, the dynamics of the game shift. Hmm. The fish are out. Two people make money. One person makes the boatload. There's a second person, a third person might break even everyone you know gets to even and everyone else is busted and you'll see what watch it watch a texas Hold'em tournament and you'll see how the table kind of goes back and forth takes a while two people go out all of a sudden the game shifts so on and so forth well back when you and i and and mike started selling there were a lot of fish in the game right there were a lot of crappy companies crappy salespeople cra- crappy processes well for the most part those guys are gone
1: uh I'm gonna challenge that. Still uh, yeah, whole I'm whole gonna. I, I, There's I, I, still a whole shitload of crappy sales reps out there. But I think that the knowledge. I mean, where you're going with with the knowledge. I think those two fish are the ones that aren't paying attention to the other and don't know the the signs and that type of stuff.
0: I think. But, I think. I, think I, I don't mean to say that there aren't crappy salespeople because Lord knows I've 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 been on the wreck. Right. What What I mean by that, you know, to some degree, the pro the, the volume of process. Hey, what we can't do in quality, we'll make up in quantity. Right. Yep. You know there, there, there's that game where, I mean, in essence, everyone's commoditizing themselves and, and what you're seeing, right. Salesforce, huge winner, a whole bunch of other people playing for scraps, yep. a couple a couple games in other places. Um, and, and, and so we, you know, we, we, we think we you know, Hey, my people just need to be passionate. Going, yeah, there's yeah. that myth. We, we got to understand that we operate in, in this competitive landscape. Is, is, is kind of what I'm getting at. And you know what, for the most part, our competitors are pretty smart too, for the most part. At least there are competitors that are pretty smart too. And certainly our customers, we, you're in a tech space more than, so this would be where, how many companies actually have a solution that that no one could live without? Like there's not a second player that I could get the job done with them. Yeah, okay. you might be better, but-
1: Very few. There's, 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 you know, there's 17 iterations of the same product. Some are definitely better than others, but yeah, no, there's, there's so many options. And I think that's really where, you know, where I agree with you is that, you know, the buyer obviously has become way more educated and there are a lot more options out there. And, and so if you're still that sales rep going through the motions, you're getting passed up now because yes, there are better sellers out there who are using the technology to understand their clients more effectively. And and customers are are, are not, uh, the tolerance for bullshit now with a customer is is at an all time low. You know what I mean? The minute you stop showing value, the, the minute somebody can sniff out that there's no value in this cold call, in this qual call, in this demo, in this whatever, is immediately when people check out.
0: And, and the people that are playing on that and where I actually am increasingly putting the blame, and I don't know what the solution is, so I'm going to count on you to help us figure it out. <laughs> in
2: yeah.
0: I, 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 think it's, I think it's the tech companies that are the problem. Um, I, I, I kid a little bit, but th- this whole fear of missing out. Hey, here's the thing. Put chat on your site. And yeah. you know, we're in a conversational economy. People don't want to, they want to buy right now. Put chat on your site and you buy. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, 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 it's ABM. Right, mm-hmm. account based. You know, put do ABM, and you're all. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I I had a company, John, who wanted to do ABM. They said, "Well, well, what expertise do you have in ABM? Because that that's really where we want to go." <laughs> What's your average sale value? Was
1: about thousand bucks.
0: <laughs> two thousand dollars. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you you can't do ABM. No, it's
2: not. Yeah, <laughs> hey, it's
0: let's have, let, yeah, Let's let's have ten thousand dollars sales cost per acquisition. We'll get we'll make two thousand dollars on the sale, and we'll make it up mm-hmm. in volume.
2: Like, I I, and, and, and I stuff agree stuff. with you, Doug. Some of it is like just this fear of missing out, and it's marketers rebrand. Like when ABM first came out, I was like, "What the hell is ABM? This is what this is what we did." Right. Like any enterprise tech organization, that's what they do. How is this actually a thing now? I think
0: ABM is great. But it's advanced, like you really need to know your cut, you don't need to know your industry, you need to know the account. Right? What's happening in this account? And and nobody is like, it's less than I've ever seen. Nobody's out there telling people this is hard. So it's not easy.
1: It, no, it's not easy. But you know, it's funny, I just had a, uh, a lunch with my good friend and business partner, uh, Chris Merrill, who who is helps me with a lot of my online presence, but also I share another company with and he was like, if john, if there's ever been a time where I've wanted to write a blog post, it's about customer fit. Right. Because we've been working on this, this other product that we're working on for this, for my other company. And, and it's like, you know, it's taken a while to get there, but then all of a sudden we've kind of honed in and he's focused on this one very specific ideal customer profile. And, and now that it's there, it's, Ooh, it's humming. Right. Because now it is a, it's like, I know where those people live. I can follow them. I can figure out where they are on social. I can speak their language. And then when I talk to them, it's not a sales pitch because the fit is there. It's either there or it's not. Right. And that's for me, like, you know, I joke around when I, when, when customers talk to me as far as prospects and stuff like that. And they asked me, so what do you know what all this, I go, look, I'm a two trick pony. I got filling the funnel. I got driving a close. It's a one day program on each of them. One of them helps you get the business. The other one helps you close it. And it really fits in kind of the mid markets, you know, for the filling the funnel stuff. It's really anybody who's trying to do outbound with an ACV of, you know, 20 grand or more um, for the process, for the negotiation stuff. It's really mid market where you're dealing with 10 to 30 deals on a regular basis and you need some common language around that. And it is so clear cut what I sell and it is such a clear cut focus on who I sell to and where I can add value that it's really not even a sale for me. So for me, for me, you know, I have people fill out the qualification form online or whatever it is. I send them actually a a meeting efficiency survey. that says, Hey, fill out this before our call checkbox stuff. And then when the phone call it's either a fit or it's not, that's why I actually don't even do a lot of my own um, pre-sales anymore. My COO Megan, who is, an accountant and a lawyer. She's got a, a law degree and a, and a finance degree. She, but and, and she has a personality. But she does almost every one of my initial calls because I don't need her to sell it. It's when the person gets on. She asks these five questions. She then says, "Okay." Then she tells them exactly what the program is, and then she tells them exactly how much it costs. And it and if they're like, "Well, and they don't want to spend that much," okay, never mind. Next, 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 because 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 when it's a fit. Customers like, okay, send me the contract. And then I go and do the training for that. And cause I look for clients that I can walk in and say, who are going to walk out of my training and go, holy shit, that was incredible. I, I do not want clients walking out going, yeah, that was okay. And I don't think any other, uh, like, you know, I think um, unfortunately too many customers beco- or I'm sorry, too many uh, companies because because they're, you know, they got venture funding or their private equity, for, you know, or, or whatever it is, they're being pushed to hit numbers and numbers and numbers. So they will accept pretty much anybody that says maybe, you know what I mean? And, and, and is, a, you know, it isn't that core ideal customer profile. They'll go four, five, six rings outside that ideal customer profile because they got a sales rep that might be able to convince that person to buy this shit, even though it's not really the right fit. And that's why 50% of quota is not attained, right? 50% of sales. Because they're chasing after fish that won't fucking bite.
0: You you just hit a really interesting point. I don't even know that you hit – that you, it, it at least opened something in my head. There is that – remember when you said, you know, if we can just get to a million? Yeah. If we could just get to a million, everything will be fine.
2: Right.
1: If
0: you're at a million, you're like, okay, if we could just get to three million. Yep. Right? And then – and, and so you've got that money that's been given. You got all that. You, you, you had a great point. You, re, you know, your friends, family, and fools. I love that. Mm-hmm. got all these great things. The venture threw money at you because they knew underneath it, you know, the technology you had is, is, is pretty good. So, it, you know, if your company fails, we'll at least pull the technology out and sell that to somebody and, re, and recoup that. Uh, yeah. I was joking with Mike the other night. I, I want somebody to do a research. Actually, you got guys who do research projects. Here's your next research project. Yeah. How many companies have been sold for $35 million or more where the founders got nothing?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just wrote that post. I just wrote that post uh, Thursday. Yeah, like the downside of an acquisition.
0: (laughs) You know, and and like everyone's like, you know, their neighbors are like, oh, my God, he's low. Did you hear he just sold his company for $35 million? Yeah. Got a job now.
1: Yeah. Everybody thought, everybody thought after I sold uh, my first guy, and by the way, I wasn't the original founder. I was like, I was like the fourth one on board. And so, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I only got like one or 2%. And when we sold, you know, I got a nice little down payment on a house. But the, the founders got millions and even though I was there from almost day one, you know, I got 80 grand, which I'm not, I'm not blinking at 80 grand, but if you took my 80 grand and amortized that over the seven years of where I worked there, I was still massively underpaid for what I did for that company.
0: Well, and I, and I laugh, you know, I get the VC money and, and you know, it, you're like the teenager who just signed the record contract and, you know, you get, you're, you're the best seller and all this and you go, wait, I don't own my music? Right, like oh, preferential shares. Oh, didn't realize what that meant.
1: Ooh.
0: <laughs> and 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 so there, there's this idea that you know, if I can get to one, if I can get to five, then everything takes care of itself. And what they don't understand is if you haven't built the plumbing. Again, Mike and I were talking about this last night. I think you get to. I think you can get to a million on hustle. Yep. I think you can get to two million on hustle and grit.
1: Yep. That's where I'm at I, right now, by the way. I'm like hustling grit right now. I'm fucking grinding every day. And I'm, I'm almost at that 2 million mark. So and, i exactly right.
0: And I think you can get to 5 million. And, and by the way, a lot of people will fail on hustle and grit too there. So kudos mm-hmm. to you. I think you can get to maybe 5 million with hustle, grit, and a really awesome tailwind, i.e. luck. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't – and by the way, if you get to 5 million on hustle, grit, and tailwind – look to sell because <laughs> yeah. because yeah. that it, it it doesn't get any better than that uh, you guys probably aren't even old enough to remember when steve stone won the cy young award for the orioles and i was like you know trade him because he'll never have a year like that again <laughs> <laughs> nothing for him um
1: well that was really- uh so for the, a little bit more relevant is uh, isaiah thomas here in boston last year isaiah thomas was off the fucking charts yeah. through hustle and grit and just everything right and we – unfortunately for him, but fortunately for us, we traded him at the perfect time. <laughs> so got, he'll got, be all-stars again.
0: And you got a broken knee for it in return.
1: Yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> we weren't expecting much this season anyways. Ne- watch. All I got to say is watch out for the Celtics for the next eight years. We're going to be Golden State for the next eight years because we got some <laughs> talent. <captains. laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And, and what, what keeps you at five and what gets you above that is plump.
1: Is what? Say it again. Plumbing. Okay. Plumbing yeah. 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 The okay.
0: The pro, you know, and, and, it, you know, people are saying you can't do um, personalized, contextualized email at scale. Yeah, you can. If you do the really hard work up front to figure out the structure. Right. Right. And, and that's the hard. No one wants to do the hard work up front. They want to, they want to do it after they, they've gotten that payoff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I, I think, and, and let's, move the conversation from a rant and maybe give Mike a chance to get a word at edgewise. As much as this, and and I, anybody who's been around me for the last two or three weeks knows how salty I've been on, on this kind of trail. And I think I finally got a little bit of peace today because I actually realized, I said, you know what? This is actually good. Right. As long as I stay focused and as long as, you know, for me, as long as I can find the businesses that can stay focused, let all these people play all these noise and feel like they're doing the thing. Yep. Let, let's, let's find those people who are ready to, to build those strong fundamentals, get growth, do those things. And, and I, I see it coming. I've, I've been through cycles before. I think it's a huge advantage if you've been around for a long time, if you saw a bad market, you, you know what it looks like. You know oh, yeah. we're 18 to 24 months at most away from that. Oh yeah. Right. And, and all these people who are running around, like they've, you know, reinvented sales. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're going to get a wake up call, but if we let that noise happen, it's hard. Stay focused on, on the key elements, the things that you talked about and, and you're going to build that business that lasts, you're going to build that real value. You're going to be the one when everyone's scurrying around, you're actually going to be able to sit back because you've got a machine that works. I, I think that's the opportunity.
1: Yeah. And I, and I'll just make one comment on that. Cause I think it's, I think it's the, the mentality has to, has to be this way. You know, if you start a company with the goal of selling it, um, I've, I've I'm it's rare that you'll succeed if you start a company because you really want to provide a really quality service to a good, you know, to, a, to a, the right client and, and, you know, and you build it that way, you'll eventually sell it. You know what I mean? Cause it'll add that much value. But if your end game is to sell, I think you're looking at it completely wrong um, because you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You know what I mean? You're, you're not doing it because you're trying to solve a true problem. You're not tr- doing it cause you're really trying to make a difference. You're trying to do it so you can be that guy who sold a company. You know what I mean, and you know you know some people do it, and don 't get me wrong there 's plenty of people that come up with a, a decent idea and then fucking say, "See you later, take it out of here i 'm going to go start something else because they have that creative mindset. Um, but I, my whole mentality is start a company because you're genuinely passionate about what you do and who you sell to and the problems that you're solving. And then, you know, acquisition shit like that comes along if you get the plumbing,
2: right? I, so, you know, John, I know I, what they I, say.
0: I, Hold on, Mike. You know what they say, right? The second billion is a lot easier to
2: make than the first. Oh, no, shit. Yeah. <laughs> the second 50 customers are a lot easier to get than the first 50. Um, <laughs> no, but I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying there, John, because I get asked all the time and even early stages of starting our company when we were were thinking about raising funding, you know, talking to some of the largest VCs in the world, it's like, well, where do you see this company? You know, do you want to get acquired? Do you want to IPO? And it's like, you know, I can't control those things. All I can control is building a good product and try really hard to build a good product. And listening to customers, which will eventually lead into building a good product. I can control those things. I can control who my customers are, Mm -hmm. but I can't control whether or not somebody acquires me or not. So why would I even focus any mental energy whatsoever on that aspect of it?
1: And it's interesting because, especially if you go for VCs, that's exa- but that's the wrong answer to a VC. It, it, it,
2: you, it, you know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. And they, they, they all thought I was crazy when I, when I had that response. They're like, a
1: VC will tell you to go, okay, next. If, if that's your answer, a VC will say next, which is the problem, right? Because the answer, that should be like, yes, that's exactly the answer I was looking for because if you build a quality service, we'll take care of helping you sell this thing because that's our job. Your job is to go crush it from a quality and, and an execution standpoint, Right. So, you you know, in order to get money, you have to tell that VC, oh, our addressable market is this, and we're going to be a billion-dollar company in six months, you know, and blah, 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 and I'm going to be able to sell this and make, you know, you back your 15x your investment and blah, 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 and that, like that's what people want to hear. And and the thing that, you know, the thing that made me, we're, we're in such a short-term focused world right now, it's frustrating because the thing, one of the things that really made me sad was a while back, and, you know, I I hate to talk in politics, but there's, the, there was something i watched an interview with hillary clinton and i don't i'm not talking which side you're on the her interview was at she actually interviewed 50 ceos of the top 50 companies in the world and the question to them was asked if if you could make a if you could do something today that um, that in five years was going to it, you know be great for everything great for the environment great for your people great for your company and all that other stuff but it was going to mean one penny not a dollar one penny off of your stock price today would you make that decision and fifty out of fifty CEOs said no. And the reason that they said no was because if I if I made that decision today that impacted our stock price by a penny, I wouldn't make it for five years to have to see that come to fruition. And I think, unfortunately, that's why, you know, if I were to ever start a company again and have like a group, you know, that type of thing, uh, I wouldn't do month-to-month sales quotas. I think month-to-month sales quotas, so all the wrong behaviors by sales reps and by managers. We have to hit this, we have, and, and that's unfortunately when companies go public, that's what you See, it's a month to month. Beat the shit out of the client, do whatever it takes, just get the deal in, discount the fuck out of it just so that we can show that we signed something. You know what I mean? And it's just it it really forces bad behavior. You know, bare minimum, I would say quarterly. You know, quarterly okay. So it's maybe only once every you know, four times a year we do the douchey shit. Um, but but at least there's some, you know, some control there.
0: Hey John, I'm gonna give you a solution that'll get rid of all the douchey shit. It actually will. And it depends that yeah. depending upon the length of the sales cycle, it's trailing three month average, trailing six month average. There you so go. No one month makes the difference. It's, right. I've got to maintain a monthly average. So you're still month to month.
2: Perfect. Yeah.
0: But, but, it, but it's an average job. So I can't, so one big month doesn't, right. doesn't materially change anything and, and builds that next thing. You'll, you'll, you'll get all of the same positive behaviors. Mm-hmm. You'll just get, you'll get an end of that douchiness and that stuff that I think ultimately takes away enterprise value.
1: Yeah, hands down. And that, and that goes back to, by the way, that goes back to the point where we're in this world of, we, we know quality is the answer, but quantity is the, pro, you know, we still do that. It's like, we know that we have to build long-term value, but we got to close that fucking sale today.
0: What, what, it's funny that I'm going to say this because I am a, a huge data guy. I love data. And I think part of the problem is that there's too much data and we become data obsessed yeah and and, I, and i'm not even there, there's a political piece to this and i'm going to really try hard to stay away because boy we'll really blow it up you brought up yeah yeah, yeah. if i bring up this other thing that, that that'll be over but <laughs> this whole thing about winning and and yeah. and what people are missing is the the conversations about did i win today and, yeah. and years ago smart negotiators actually looked you know, traditional negotiation was win-lose.
1: Right. The idea
0: yep. was when I walk away from the table in that moment, who won, who lost, that was the key. And what they found was for both parties, that was bad. You couldn't, it's like when, when, when an acquisition occurs, you can't measure the, the good or bad of the acquisition for five years. Right. And, and what we want to do is, because that has become so easy and so many people are, are you know, AI is the next thing. Is, by the way is it true that if I put Splenda in my coffee and I drink it that means I have artificial intelligence
1: <laughs> yes I um, think that's that's what I heard yeah. that recently <laughs>
0: um, so you know so data is so easy to measure and it's and and we're all running around we, we forget that data is like a lamppost to a drunk mm-hmm. for support than illumination but we' we're, we're you know we've gone to from measuring the month to measuring the week to measuring the day to measuring the hour and thinking yeah. like this is actually telling us what the right thing or wrong thing is, yeah. and, and and everybody's lost the message of Moneyball. But, well, with,
1: with, go ahead. no, I was going to bring this up, but go ahead. Let me see your angle on this, because I guess I got I got my angle on this one.
0: So, so everyone everyone's worn an array with the with the message of Moneyball of oh they found on base percentage. Let's find a uh, let, let's find a neat metric. Yep. No, what they did was two things. First off, they said what are we solving for? We want to win baseball games, but Mm -hmm. we can't control how many games that we win. So they spent, you know, the guy who created Paul T. Podesta, who created this, who figured this stuff out, looked and said, okay, what is the number that is the best indicator of games to win? Sure. That doesn't guarantee anything, but best indicator, and that was runs. And so basically what they did was they said, we need to solve for runs. Runs are the outcome that lead to the result of wins. And if we can maximize runs, then we should be able to win games over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's figure out what are the things that actually contribute to runs, right? Let, let, let's not, let's not worry about, does it say they're a good player, bad player, popular, not popular. Mm-hmm. What really matters, but I'm sorry, what, what, what is causal <clears throat> rather than coincidence or, or correlation? Sure. So that was, the, that was the next piece of what, what, is, what is it that contributes? Now, let's take a look at what of those metrics, what are the metrics that no one else is paying attention to, uh-huh. that, that, that people are discounting? And further, what are the metrics that everyone pays attention to and make- really value, but they don't contribute? Right. And, and that's where the A's got their advantage. And everyone forgets that for five years, they were called stupid. No one could understand how they were winning games. How are they putting this hodgepodge together? And by the way, why have the A's not won much since then? Because now it's standard and, and they lost that advantage. Um, I got into a debate with somebody today around that. He's like, I think you're just being a contrarian to be a contrarian.
1: Yeah.
0: And what I wanted to say was thanks.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right.
0: Cool. Keep it up, man. Because, you know <laughs> – this just tells you that you can share it and, and you're not gonna figure it out.
1: Well, my so we've got
0: to play I, money. So your take on it. You no,
1: know, Moneyball is a beautiful example of of how and why it needs to be a blend between art and science. And I use the A's as a perfect example. I actually think the A's, and you know more about it than I do, but <clears throat> I actually think the A's tried to science it out too much, which is why they never won the World Series with Moneyball. Because what happened was they scienced it out so much and they took out the, the, the you know, the X factors, right? They, they don't consider, for instance, they don't look at a clutch hitting. Like that has nothing to do with Moneyball. There's no such thing as clutch That's hitting.
0: Because there's no such thing as clutch hitting.
1: Talk to me about David Ortiz and go eat shit. So and, and, and I'm going to make this analogy to prove you wrong. I'm going to make this analogy to prove you wrong because I like your analogy of Moneyball, right? But the A's didn't win shit. So guess what? The Red Sox brought Billy Bean over and said, hey, you want to come over here and do it? And he was like, no, fuck you. I'm going to go stay at the A's. Dumb idea. So the Red Sox took his exact model and then added Manny Ramirez and David Ortiz. No. The Savants. Wrong. Oh, come on. All right. Talk to me.
0: What, what, the, what the Red Sox did – hold on a second. Are we, is, is this working because my um, – we'll edit this, but all of a sudden I'm having – is it my internet or are we good? Can you guys hear me?
1: Yeah, we can hear you. Your video is fucked okay, up, but yeah, your audio is fine.
0: What? Um, <laughs> so what, what the Red Sox did was they took Moneyball and added money to the equation. So, so in defense of the A's, remember the A's did not have money to spend. Sure. The reason the reason they didn't win it is they figured out how to win it.
1: One hundred sixty-two games. Sure. Right. Sure. So- but if Billy Bean had come to the Red Sox, he would have been successful because there's that element of of non-science that has to be taken into consideration. To your point, like people are overanalyzing data and they're not acting. They're not doing things. They're not thinking for themselves. They're saying, ah, the data says do this, so we should go do that.
0: So I, I, don't, I don't disagree that there's X factor and, 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 and you don't control things, but I, I want to I actually think this plays to, to, to something that's even a little bit bigger, but I do want to stand up for Billy Bean for just a second. Because remember, he actually did sign with the Red Sox. He actually did agree with John Williams. Yes. And and he made the decision that the last time he did something for money, that he regretted it, so he decided to stay with the A. So it, it, he didn't, like, go, oh, the Red Sox, I'm going to be more successful here. He just made the decision that from a life standpoint. So. Yes, you know, and I'm sure he bought a Make It Happen shirt, by the way, too. <laughs> um, so, so here's what happens, though. The, so the, the Red Sox were in a position where they could play money ball and they could play X-Factor ball. So if you look at the, the problem with X-Factor, especially as it relates to baseball, is you have to overpay for it. Mm-hmm. okay. And and so if you're the A's, you're not in a position to overpay for it. And and I I don't know what Billy Bean would say, but I think he would say, "You're right, John. We never won it all. But if we hadn't done what we did, we wouldn't have gotten to the point where we could have lost it." Right.
1: I, no, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. Like they did unbelievable with what they had, but you can't. It's not all science, is what I'm saying. So it's I'm going to. It's t- all t- science, regardless. Regardless, if it was all science, then it wouldn't matter about that X you're factor.
0: You're right. You're right. You wouldn't so have to t- pay for it. I'm going to tell you my two favorite stories. Um, one, which got to your total addressable market. My two favorite stories of the last 10 years. David Cummings, actually, when I, was, when I saw you in Atlanta, yep. told the story of Pardot. And when they went to raise money, every venture capital firm turned him down because the total addressable market wasn't big enough for one company. And today, HubSpot's worth $5 billion. Marketo's worth $2 billion. The, the TAM wasn't big enough. How about that for, um, for Insanity?
1: Uh, talk about a lack of force, right?
0: <laughs> my, my other favorite story was my, the first inbound conference I went to. Brian Halligan was, was talking um, on a panel. And he was saying, well, what we did at HubSpot was we did this, 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 and it was all great. And then he said something that no one else says when they tell their story of success. He said, of course, we've also raised $150 million. So we can do a lot of things that other people can't do. Right, And so we look at all these stories of success and we go, let me jump on that. I'm going to play their playbook. Yeah. And what we never do, I don't want to, that's, that's an exaggeration. What too many companies don't do, and certainly advisors don't do, is to realize that different companies are playing different games and therefore should employ different playbooks. Just because this worked for somebody else doesn't mean you can just copy. Right. right. And, and, and I think that's the other aspect and story of Moneyball. Mm-hmm. So Mike, I know you got questions. I've dominated the whole thing. So I'm going to step back and um, why don't you get us in a direction towards the latter part of it and, and help us figure out how, how do we get some uh, takeaway? What do we do about all this?
2: Yeah, no. So um, this has been awesome. And I've, I've, I've loved just sitting in the background and listening to the, listening to the conversation. Um, you know, from a, from a practicality standpoint, and we've, we've talked about a lot of theory today, here's the problem, here's what's going on. You know, what are some of, when, when you're out training, John, what are some of the key takeaways that you want people to, to walk away with? At the very beginning, one of the things that you said, which I have seen some, some incredible, and again, this goes back to what Doug just said of, hey, just because it worked for one company doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for you. Right. But where I've seen companies that have been hugely successful in defining their market, defining you know what that ideal customer profile looks like and i hate to use the word align their marketing and sales team but i'm just going to use it. is sure. is they've broken down some of those physical barriers which you said hey marketing is on the fourth floor sales is on the third floor and what some of these companies have done is they said hey we're just we're just going to co-mingle you because marketing is now going to hear what the sales reps questions that they're answering they can ping marketing and say hey this uh, if you could make this piece of content change for me or, Hey, what do you think about this sales email that I'm about to write? Because I know myself as a salesperson, I'm actually, a, a, and Doug knows this as well. I am a shitty, shitty, shitty writer. <laughs> yeah. I hate writing. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, so I have a guy on my team that every time I go write something or I have an idea, I just ask him to write it. So mm-hmm. uh, but anyways, again, what, what are your, some of your takeaways um, as far as like what you want people to walk away with.
1: Yeah, so, crazy. you know, I think it starts with two things. I, the, I, it goes back to giving, when I said the founder's dilemma about how the founder's passionate about it and then they hire sales reps and they just say go sell, right? And they give them this pitch deck and they go, you know, give them a commission in the territory and say run and it fails. Uh, the reason is, is because they don't have a deep understanding of it. So I'll, I'll start with the ICP. An easy thing to do for every company out there is don't just give your most reps start a company at, you know, start at a company and they get given hopefully the company has an ICP and it tells them hey, but it's usually based on basic demographic shit like how many employees what industries and whatever, where it, there's a lot more to it obviously than that. And so what I would do is I would have go through the exercise of get, going back to structure and how I think structure is the answer here. Give somebody the structure of what an ICP looks like and what are the factors there and then have the reps go do some homework on existing customers. Look at case studies, what are the similarities? What are some things that show that, hey, these are really good customers and these aren't. Um, When you're talking about your ICP, don't just bring in your sales team to do it. Bring in your sales, finance, and customer success team to talk about it because sales is going to tell you that their ICP is the company that spends the most. Finance is going to tell you that it's going to be the most profitable company, and customer success is going to be the one that has the least tickets, right? And somewhere in the middle there is the real ICP. And once the sales rep really understands what to look for and why, that's when they start having better conversations. It's the same thing with personas. So there's ICP work you can do there easily of getting everybody in the same room and having that conversation and dissecting it. Same thing with personas sit in a room and don't just tell them, Hey, don't just give them the fucking one pager with bill as the CIO and bill talks about innovation and bill cares about, you know what I mean? It's like reps, most reps, by the way, and this is how I know companies don't do a good job articulating to their reps, you know, who their real personas are. I go into trainings and I train 30, 40 reps at the same time. And I will ask all of them, even ones who sell technical solutions, who in here knows the difference between a CIO and a CTO? Crickets. Maybe one or two hands will go up. And they and they don't understand it. So it's like, holy shit, you're selling a technical solution to a technical buyer and you think that a CIO is the same as a CTO or you at least don't know the difference there. So so go through that IC go through that persona with the client. Have customers come in who are CIOs and talk to the talk to the reps about what do I give a shit. Have them do a fucking Google search that says CIOs, healthcare, priorities, two thousand eighteen, see what comes up. Right. Because then the more they understand that and they learn how to speak the language of those people, the better they're going to be at qualifying, coming up with messaging, relevant, you know, being relevant. So that's where sales and marketing can work together um, in easy ways. Um, As opposed to just giving them, like I said before, structure versus scripts. You give them a script of here's our persona. They're going to read off of that script and they're going to sound like an idiot. And when they get asked that second layer question, they're going to throw up all over themselves. You give them structure and you tell them to go do something and learn about it and come back and give feedback. They'll actually embrace it and understand it and be able to have better conversations.
0: John, I know you got to go. That is that's, that is awesome. Actually, we're just you just made me change some of my training program right there. So you at least gave me take home value. There you go, brother. Man, this was fun. I hope you enjoyed it. Why don't um, you tell everybody how they can uh, follow you?
1: Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Uh, you know, so just jbarrows.com. So J-B-A-R-R-O-W-S.com on there. You'll find all my social shit. Um, I got a resource library on there where I give about 80% of uh, stuff away for free. My blog, same thing. Um, actually, right after this, this is why I have to get off. I'm doing a, a, we do a Friday afternoon Facebook um, happy hour where me and Morgan get on Facebook live. It's on our Facebook uh, group, right? So if you go to J, if you go to Facebook slash Jay Barrows and then join the make it happen group, uh, it's a full blown Q and a where I'm jumping on right after this. Anybody who wants to jump on, we answer questions, talk about some of the things that came up throughout the week. And it's just a really good way to, to, to really engage and get good information out there.
0: So I'll ask all my other questions on that. I'll just jump over to Facebook live. And
1: ask there you go. Bring it on! Right.
0: Yeah, thank you so much.
1: All right, guys, make it a great day. All right. Thanks,
2: John. thanks so Hey,
0: make it happen, everybody. There you go, make <laughs> it happen,
2: brother. <laughs> thanks.